Mr. Deshona worries. We've got you covered on point and on our podcast. The Iron Ring, we were promised, still not around our long-term care facilities. How is that possible this late in the game? The defense in the Manassian trial really has only one play, and that is that he was on the spectrum. Because Manassian understands what he did, but only understands the wrongfulness at the intellectual level and not in a rational way. It's a very tricky case to, to fight for them and a very complex, not often seen in a courtroom. We'll talk about a vital pipeline that brings Alberta oil to Ontario and it's being shut down by the mission or governor. Who cares? Well, you will when it drives up costs on almost everything and could lead to energy shortages. And there's a special kind of UV lighting. It can kill viruses like COVID and many other germs. It is cheap. It is available. Why aren't we looking at that? Let's get talking. We see cases growing across the country, and it's alarming, Mr. Speaker, and Canadians have every right to be concerned. We also know there's a light at the end of the tunnel, Mr. Speaker. Canada has procured more doses of vaccine per capita than any other country in the world. And, Mr. Speaker, that light at the end of, at the, end of the tunnel should give us all hope. Yeah, so we have no rapid testing. We've lost control of the virus. Lockdowns are crushing businesses. But yes, at least we have hope. That's what we're going to do. We're going to just hope. Not a guarantee that a vaccine's on the way, but uh, hope. And then who gets it first? Certainly it should be Canadians. No. Hello there. Alex Pearson with you on this Monday, November 16th. And what a weekend it was. Boy, it went by. It blew on by real fast. Faster than that wind. But I woke up this morning. I said, "Where that? Where did that weekend go?" And it was one of uh, full gales, gales of November, very galish this weekend. And I spent uh, two hours on Saturday raking leaves, and that's where I'm happiest because I wasn't talking and I wasn't thinking about COVID. I was just there with my rake, raking leaves that are all now back on my property. So I'm not sure why I did it, but. Uh, that's what I do in my spare time. Anything anything not to talk about or think about COVID. But yes, the uh, gales of November reminding us how cruel of a winter we're going to be facing. And a COVID winter, nonetheless, where uh, we're going to be able to go to shopping malls, but we won't be able to go to parks. I don't know if you heard about this, but I was reading over the weekend that Toronto Health is going to recommend a shutdown of parks. Because that sounds like smart policy, right? You know? They don't want us socializing in parks at a distance. But, you know, get on a TTZ vehicle if you have to get to work. That makes sense. Not a done deal yet. But there is absolutely no data to suggest we are seeing outbreaks in parks. And this is one of the very few outlets that doesn't cost parents money. It's one of the very few outlets that kids have left to keep normal in their lives, you know, and burn off steam while keeping parents somewhat sane. So if anyone at Toronto Health is listening and thinks that that's a good idea, it is not. It wasn't a good idea the first time around, but it's an even dumber idea now. But, uh, you know, it's hearing about that kind of stuff that people are like just not buying in because that is stupid policy. It makes no sense. And it goes after the very, very wrong people because we know who to go after. I mean, there are so many people who just don't care about the rules. We've heard about it all day in the news. You know, they don't listen to the politicians pleading. And uh, they go out, bedam the consequences. You've got those who either went to Diwali 
Diwali t- uh, celebrations of the weekend in Peel Region. Uh, you had a, a guy who decided to have 100 friends in a rager in a storage unit. Who goes to a party in a storage unit? Is this like a new thing that I don't know about? That sounds like the most awful idea ever. Like, where's the bathroom? What if a fire starts? Is there an escape route? I mean, honestly, it sounds like the craziest party ever, but nonetheless, they're doing that. Or the teens in London who had a kegger for 100 of their closest friends in London. They just don't care. They do not care. They don't care that businesses are being shut down because of them. They don't care the consequences. They don't care if they spread the thing. And so that's why, you know, uh, Premier Ford went off on it today. On the weekend, I thought there was like 4th of July happening up in uh, North Etobicoke. I was up by my office. I'm seeing fireworks going all over. God bless you. Have fun. But guys, you got to have fun within your own family and in your own household. And so that that, that was disturbing. Hmm, slightly. So yeah, a few a few ha- uh, fines were handed out, but you know I don't think people care about that either because they're not tough enough. So a lot of people look at it and say, "I guess I'll take my chances of getting caught," you know, because they hear the politicians plead on one hand, "Don't go out," and then on the other hand they say, "Well, enforcement isn't really being enforced." So shock of all shocks that hundreds go out and celebrate and do whatever the heck they want. And I think that is what makes, I think, where we find ourselves so incredibly frustrating because we should not be here. And part of that is because those in charge aren't taking charge. You know, we get 20 different messages every single day. Everyone's got a different opinion. The balance is impossible to find. And then you got a lot of people who just say to hell with it. I'm just going to do what I got to do because I don't care. And I guess it won't be till we see the, the carnage of it, the economic carnage that they'll say, oh. I didn't realize. But let us talk about the exciting news that we get to wake up to on a Monday. I think it's every Monday now we get this good uh, vaccine news. It kind of takes us into the week in a, on a positive note. And then the weeks close on a very dour note. But nonetheless, we'll take it. It is Moderna. You've been hearing about this in the day. It's even better than Pfizer because you don't have to store it at subarctic temperatures. And it's also a creation of a Toronto-born and raised molecular bio- biologist. Here's a guy who walked away from his job at Harvard Harvard when he was a whole 50 years old because he said it didn't define him. He wanted to do other stuff. He wanted to be a hockey dad to his kids. And he developed this little company called Moderna back, I think, in 2010. And um, he said no one really understood what it was that he was doing. But nonetheless, he stepped away from all of that, sat on the board. And now it, now what he does is he enjoys the life of cottage country, being a hockey dad to his kids and now watching his stock of Moderna go through the roof. And good on him. Good on him. But we've only got access to 6 million doses of this one. And it's a two-dose vaccine. So really, we're talking 3 million doses. And so the question, and we're going to start to see this ethical debate, is who gets it? Who gets the vaccine? Assuming, of course, that either of the vaccines that we've actually heard about actually get to market. Does it you know, go to frontline workers? Does it go to essential workers? And if so, who's essential? I think a lot of people say, yeah, well, I'm essential. I get it. You know, does it go to the oldest? Does it go to the most vulnerable? Or maybe we give it to the kids so they can stay in school and, and not carry it around like Petri dishes, giving it to everyone in the community. I don't know. Who gets it? There are going to be an awful lot of debates about it. But there are... You know, one thing I'm very sure of in the debate and where I stand on this is that Canadians should get whatever vaccine we purchased first. 
And I think for most of us, it would seem obvious, well, yeah, but there is a huge global push from the United Nations and globalist groups who see countries like Canada uh, as greedy because we bought up all the supply. And by the way, we were the last country to buy up our supply. We got to the back of the line. And they believe that whatever supply we get should then be shared with impoverished countries. And I have no issue making sure that other countries are vaccinated, but certainly not before Canadians are protected. And we are a very generous nation, so I would assume already that we would be sharing. But again, Canada first. But they don't like it because there's a group uh, called One Campaign, and they argue that vaccine nationalism, which is what they call it, they say it's dangerous. And that Canada and other wealthy nations put the world at risk with all these multi-contract uh, buying strategies. And when you read what they stand for, one campaign is a, quote, global movement that wants to end extreme poverty and preventable disease by 2030 so that everyone everywhere can lead a life of dignity. Well, okay. Very ambitious. But then they zero in on Canada. And they say, look, you've secured the most potential doses available per person. Give it over. And we've signed a deal for 282 million vaccine doses, but none of these are guaranteed. Far from it. And because he's UN obsessed and globally inclined, you know, Justin Trudeau's already signed on to something called COVAX. And this is a WHO-led vaccine coalition where wealthier countries give a portion of vaccine purchase to impoverished countries. And we've already given $450 million to this fund, so we are doing our part. 121 other countries also have signed on, but several haven't. United States has not. Russia has not. India has not, because they want their, their citizens protected first. And I'm sure all the other countries who have signed on to this will also make sure that their citizens are protected first. I bet you Australia will make sure they get the vaccine. But the globalist groups argue that if we don't share vaccines, then global supply chains will fail. But more than that, it's morally reprehensible that wealthier nations are taking a my first nation approach. Well, I would argue that if Canadians and other developed nations are not protected, then our economies are further at risk of crashing. And then we become an impoverished nation. And we do have a moral obligation to protect our most vulnerable. And if we don't, and if we don't make sure we have an economy, then we can't help anybody now, can we? But these are the ethical debates to come. And I know Canada will be generous as we always are, but I'm sorry. I think most Canadians will say, yes, when the vaccine comes, vaccinate Canadians first, and then we help who we can as we always do. And that is not something we should be ashamed of. It's not coming in from the clouds. It's not coming in from the patients. It's coming in from outside. No matter, and unwilling, you know, they, they obviously wouldn't do it because they're incredible people. And I think the world of them, but it's coming in through the staff or it's coming in through the visitors. That's the only way it's coming in. We need to lock it down. We need to have testing. But most importantly, Sean, it's not just testing people getting the results back and having a, a standard test that we can get it back in 24 hours. Yeah, okay, that is Premier Ford promising things that probably should have been done months ago. I do not understand the iron ring that is, you know, supposed to protect our most vulnerable is still not implemented. And we're watching the cases go up. We're watching the death toll go up.
And these poor people just kind of remain sitting ducks. And over the weekend, there was a pretty explosive report from our global news investigative team that reveal documents showing that uh, in the first wave, one particular nursing home in York region, they were working in an utter sense of chaos and, you know, where 56 people died. Staff worked in an absolute state of shock over lack of PPE, a shortage of staff with some people just leaving, tension between the management of the home and local health authorities who couldn't get, you know, things like tracing information, who uh, blocked from investigating outbreaks. You know, what the report seems to reveal is this system just totally unprepared for a virus that we had plenty of time to prepare for. And yet here we are again. It's just nuts to me. Let me bring in Jane Metis, who is with ACE Advocate Center for the Elderly, a lawyer who just happens to specialize in long-term care. Good to have you, Jane. Good evening. So the home that uh, Global Investigative was Mark Haven, it's a publicly funded home. It's at the center of the port, but certainly not the worst. But it does reveal the chaos that nursing homes were dealing with back in the spring. And then you fast forward to where we are now, and I don't think much has changed. I would agree. I think that, you know, um, one of the things, that, you know, like you pointed out, it certainly wasn't the, you know, the worst home. Um, it, I think it very well shows the, the lack of preparation both for the home as well as for, <clears throat> excuse me, for the um, uh, public health, how unprepared they were for the pandemic. And, you know, I, I find it very interesting that in that case, what they thought at the beginning was that initially they thought it was an influenza outbreak. Well, you know, it doesn't, shouldn't really matter. People die of influenza every year. And so why would it be any different? Why would we be treating it any differently um, from, you know, whether it's COVID or influenza? And it was very clear that it just, there just was no preparation. Right. And so then over the summer months, I think, you know, as we all took a break from this thing, clearly it wasn't taking a break from us. But those in charge, and there's so much blame to go around at every level of government, past and present. But I think most people assume these things were being fixed because we've been told we'll get the iron ring in place. And so when I hear the premier talk about, you know, we need testing, it's key, you know, and I think to myself, well, these are the things that should have been in place months ago. I mean, the fact that the federal government hasn't gotten rapid testing in place and the stuff that we have now, there's barely any of it is beyond me. Why I'm hearing reports that staff are still allowed to move home to home with different agencies. This is stuff that should not be happening in November of the second wave. And I think there's a number of things there. First of all, I'm, I'm not a fan of the Iron Ring, frankly, because what that tells me is that we keep everybody in. Um, and I think that that is, that was definitely one of the problems initially, and then it continues to be a problem today, is that we devalue our elderly so much that we don't want them in the hospital, and we're not sending them. And if we sent the first person to the hospital, um, in the home who, you know, resident who had, uh, caught the virus, then, you know, they would be in a better situation there and they have better infection control pro- protocols. They're better built. They have better, you know, staffing. Um, and we could have potentially prevented some of the, you know, the transfer between people. So, I mean, that's one of the things. With respect to the testing, I'm not sure exactly what the Premier is talking about. Is he talking about the fact that we don't have rapid testing at home? Is he talking about the fact that uh, homes, depending on where you are, such as if you're in the north, it takes a long time to get test results? Or is he talking about the fact that staff in long-term care homes are not mandated to have testing? It is not mandatory. So I mean, well, those they, things, you know, Both are not acceptable. 
Exactly. And <laughs> you, then, know. you know, with, with respect to the staffing, I think the problem with the staffing and the going from home to home is that in, in a case like the case that you saw at Mark Haven, when you mm-hmm. have just people just not showing up and people going home in the middle of shifts, and if you only have one or two people, then you have to rely on agency staff. And so they're hiring, you know, you're hiring people who are going in from home to home. And that is a problem. And I'm not sure how you fix it if people just abandon ship. I mean, you have to put somebody in from somewhere. um, and, And that's a big problem. It is. And so here we are in the middle of a second wave that's said and warned to be worse than the first. And uh, I would think it's almost impossible to press the reset button now. But again, are we looking at a complete uh, repeat of what we saw in the spring, if not worse? I'm, I suspect that we might be um, because we're still hearing issues. You know, you know, part of the problem is around the testing. Absolutely. Staff not being tested all, you know, at all in some, like they could refuse is basically the issue. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, still the, you know, issue around PPE. And I still get calls from families and residents who are in homes and saying that, you know, the staff still complain that things are locked away or that they're still being rationed or that staff come in the room, not properly gowned, not properly, um, you know, um, covered up. Um, and, and so if you can't fix that, and, you know, these homes should have been doing this for years. Like I said, they've had influenza and everything. Like, why, why is it all of a sudden this has become an issue? This should have been something that they were able to do on the drop of a dime as soon as something came up in their home. Just quickly before I let you go, because there's there's obviously so much we can talk about and we'll continue to talk about, but I mean, you know, you have to advocate for your loved ones. It's one mistake that I didn't do enough for my stepdad. Had I fought harder for him and spoken up more instead of trying to be polite, he wouldn't have died the way he did. But what would you be telling parents who have loved ones in, in homes? I would be telling people who have loved ones in homes that they really do have to keep, they have to keep those um, uh, lines of communication open. Um, I think that uh, definitely get essential caregivers in there. Um, every person is entitled to have two people assigned as an essential caregiver. And if you mm-hmm. don't live in town, you can appoint, you know, in, uh, your family member or if you're the substitute, you can appoint somebody else. It doesn't have to be right. you. Um, and I think that's just the eyes and ears that are important. Clearly. Jane, we'll have you on again to continue talking about this, but uh, I appreciate your time on this. Thanks for having me. It is absolutely crucial to speak for those who can't speak for themselves. And again, uh, you know, it's going to be an ongoing issue, but certainly they've got to get, they've got to get their crap together. This is just not acceptable. It wasn't the first time, certainly not the second time. Well, the Alec Manassian trial continues. The Crown, of course, uh, handing its case off to the defense because at the end of the day, this uh, was an agreed statement of facts. So that makes the Crown's case very, very short. It's pretty much agreed upon. And um, Manassian's father was on the stand who gave us, I think, some interesting insight about his son and that fateful day where he drove him to where he would end up picking up the van that was used to kill 10 and injure 16. He thought his son was uh, meeting a friend. I mean, he was excited about a job he'd be starting the following week. And then he only learned of what his son did when he was pulled over by a police officer that day and told it was to do with a car rental that had been linked to his father's address. And he was told to go to the Richmond Hill police because they wanted to talk to him. And then hours after that interview, that's when Alec Manassian's father understood through Google searches where he started to see footage of his son being arrested by police that he kind of went into the state of shock and just utter confusion because... The son he knew was gentle, 
and he'd never seen a you know history of violence other than maybe temper tantrums as a child. He said he felt like it on that day he had been struck by lightning twice on a sunny day. So the challenge, and there are many for the defense, is that the agreed statement of facts leaves no question that Manassian killed and maimed these people. What is at di dispute is his state of mind. Is he not criminally responsible because of his state of mind? I mean, the defense admits and admitted today he's not a psychopath, not a narcissist, and he's not antisocial. So the only diagnosis they have is based on the fact that he's on the spectrum for autism. And most autistic people are not violent in any way and are victims of violence themselves. I want to bring Lauren Honigman into this conversation. He, of course, is our global news radio legal expert. And I sent you this very early on, Lauren, because I thought, gee, this is a really complex case when yeah. you kind of really dive into it because it's a tough one for defense. Manassian's not violent. He understands what he did. He understands the wrongfulness at the intellectual level, just not in a rational way. So here they are, they're arguing, you know, he could not have made a rational argument on whether or not to do what he did. Right. And 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 this is going to be very complex. And for, for Justice Malloy, I'm sure she's going to have a lot to go through because his lawyer set it out today, you know, sort of opening the case. And, mm -hmm. and basically set it out to say, look, this is not your typical, uh, not criminally responsible case. And what's a typical, not criminally responsible case? Someone who is diagnosed as a, perhaps has schizophrenia. Somebody like who Richard is Kashkar, a, yeah. Right. Somebody who is um, a psychopath. Somebody who is losing touch with reality. Because of, remember that legal test that is so important, not being able to appreciate the nature and consequences of your act. So there's got to be that disconnect. And and what, what his counsel said, that Mr. Manassian did not understand wrongfulness in a way that enabled him to apply that understanding in a rational way. Uh, he lacked the capacity, he said, to rationally decide whether the act was right or wrong and couldn't make a rational decision as to whether or not to do it. But the, the, and then he went on to say, and that, of course, raised all the eyebrows as we, we were talking this morning. The sole relevant diagnosis, he says, as you said, Alex, is autism spectrum disorder, sometimes referred to as autism. And he came right out and he said, no, he's not a psychopath. He's not nar narcissistic. He doesn't suffer from antisocial disorder. And he's not a malinger or faking any symptoms. And so right now we're going to have to wait for the um, expert evidence, which I think is going to be coming in through at least, I think there's a minimum of three mm -hmm. forensic psychiatrists who examine him, a couple, two for the defense, one for the crown, because they're going to have to, the evidence is going to have to go to how does this autism spectrum disorder, uh, how is it related at all to those relevant elements as we talk about not criminally responsible. And he did say that uh, when, when in his submissions to, to Her Honor, uh, he, he said that when, when they, you know, you go through that video that, that we've seen snippets of and that, of course, uh, that Her Honor has gone through, uh, and when the doctors went through it, he said that, Manassian told them that he understand what he did was wrong. Mm -hmm. However, his understanding, and this is the words he used, and this, I think, Alex, is going to be really the important two words when we hear the expert evidence. He said his understanding was only at 
quote, an intellectual level and not applied to real situations. So what does that mean? Uh, you know, did he have some sort of intellectual disability? When you're talking about it an intellectual level, you're saying, oh, intellectually, I understand what I did was wrong. And that's how somehow separated from a reality admission. And, and I think that's going to be the nub of what we're going to be hearing from these experts and how that may relate here. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm tr- I've tried to recall cases um, where we have been dealing with somebody who is on the spectrum. I can't think of a case that comes to mind that certainly doesn't mean that uh, it hasn't happened, but it is right. certainly, I think, unique. But it's interesting because when the defense's, you know, um, kind of the structure of what they would be presenting came out. I mean, I, I got several um, emails from people who have children on the spectrum who, who were, I don't know if angered is the right word. It was confused. It was uh, concerned because, you know, they're like, my child is not violent. He's more apt to hug you than harm you. And so there's That's a concern right. that if you use this as a defense, then all of a sudden those in the in the autism community, those who in uh, you know have maybe have Asperger's, that they'll be then looked at as, oh, no. Could they be a, a Manassian? And and th- there's no proof, you know, to suggest right. that they're violent in any way. This, of course, but not. it is the de- it is the defense w- what they're using. Sure, and I think what what you'll find is is that that autism is not. Or how how would you phrase it? You'd say that you ought, somebody is not criminally responsible each and every time they commit a crime if they have autism, but sometimes. Autism, and that's perhaps what we're going to hear here, is that there could be times where autism would negate the key element of a crime, i.e. the mens rea, and, you know, the, the, the guilty mind, if you will, the nature, appreciating the nature and consequences of your act. So how would that be? And I think that's, that's where the experts are going to come in. And I think, you know, Alex, to your point, with people who are going to be somewhat taken aback by this and say, oh, wow, you know, you're going to say now everybody who has autism is, is violent. Every, of course not. Of course not. But I think where, and this is where these experts are going to hopefully answer these questions through this trial is to say, here's where potentially someone who has uh, autism may also not be criminally responsible. And then, right. of course, what will be very key is you can talk about it in a very the- theoretical way, in a very academic way, as experts do. But at the end of the day, Alex, it'll be did, did Mr. Manassian fit into that category, like based yeah. on the facts and based on what they, the experts uh, had seen in their own, obviously in their own interviews with him and what they saw in that interview that he did with the police. And so I think there's a lot of questions to be answered there. Um, I don't know what that meant this morning when, when his lawyer sort of outlined this for, for Justice Malloy when he said that, um, you know, his understanding of what he did, even though he knew what he did was wrong, this understanding was only at a, quote, intellectual level and didn't apply to real situations. I or, or, there, or there was a, a la- not a, a lacking of emotional understanding because, uh, you know, there was no remorse ever shown. I mean, he understood and he said, this is what I did. So he's very intellectual about it, but he's never apologized. Right. And his father uh, was asked about his involvement with incel. He had no idea. I mean, this is right. all coming at him like he doesn't know this person on the stand to be his son. But then you wonder, okay, did uh, did his 
autism put him in a vulnerable position where he could be coerced by someone in the incel community to do something wrong uh, yeah, because he didn't totally maybe have it. the emotional uh, you know skill set or, or development to understand that what he would have been doing was wrong and that's an excellent question and and i'm sure that will be a question that the experts when they testify will go to interesting you know a lot of interesting things his father said today uh one very fascinating thing to me was is that he said that he he displayed no empathy to others he never saw his son cry even as a child um and again i don't know what that means if that means anything again in light of that, we, we, we keep remembering what, where, where the arrows are going, not criminally responsible. I mean, he could have all sorts of um, symptoms that, that may or may not be relevant, but they'll only be relevant at the end of the day if it points to, for Justice Malloy, um, evidence to show that at, on, on that day, when, yeah. when he did what he did, he did not really appreciate the nature and consequences of what he was doing. And, and that's going to be very interesting to hear the experts. And by the way, uh, and this, of course, as you know, Alex, you covered so many trials as well. You understand that sometimes you get into the battle of the experts. And yeah. I'm sure that we're going to hear uh, at least one or two who are going to say, yes, this, this autis- autistic uh, spectrum disorder, uh, based on the facts here, yes, he did not appreciate the nature and consequences of his act. Um, and then I'm sure you're going to hear the Crown's expert who's going to come at it differently. I'm, I'm assuming we're going to get that uh, or we wouldn't be having a trial right now. Right. And uh, boy, it's uh, not easy to be a defense lawyer. And often, uh, and I would have to think that this case is probably about as tough as they go, because he's oh, Boris Potensic, is a very good lawyer. And, and he's not doing this for sensationalism reasons. Oh, no. But uh, I think no. it's a fascinating, it's, it's a very unique trial that we're watching. Very so. unique. And it's going to be, yeah. and we have to wait now. We have to wait to hear yeah. what these experts say. All right. I will call upon you again. And um, <laughs> I appreciate your insight. Thank you. Okay, talk to you soon. That is uh, Lauren Honigman joining us. It is a very, very, the more you read about it and, and what uh, Justice Malloy is, is um, you know, at being asked to, to, to judge and rule upon, it's, it's not easy, it's not cut and dry. And uh, boy, oh boy, it is a very complex case. As simple as it seems, very complex. All right, great to have you here on this Monday. What is Line 5 and uh, why do you care that it's being shut down? I mean, you probably haven't even heard about this because it's barely getting the attention it should because this is a crucial pipeline that brings about 87 million liters of Alberta oil and natural gas daily to four refineries in Ontario, Quebec, and Michigan. And it supplies everything from cars, uh, homes, jets, and without it, not only will prices soar, but we could actually face severe energy shortages and as well as the loss of 5,000 jobs. But this happened on Friday by the Michigan governor who decided to take legal action to shut down this 6.4 kilometer section of the pipeline that just runs right under the Lake Huron and Lake Michigan uh, kind of area. And she argues that it's fueled by, she and and, and other climate activists, we should add, uh, argue that Enbridge has ignored structural problems that puts the Great Lakes at risk, not because it has actually caused any damage, but it could. And so therefore, they want the line shut down in 180 days. And instead, they want oil and natural gas to be shipped by rail, boat and truck. 
which of course have all had incidents to shown are much less safe and reliable than a pipeline. Dan McTagg, of course, is president of the Canadians for Affordable Energy. And Dan, you were waving the red flags like nobody's business um, in the last 48 hours. And and really, this is a this is a big issue for Ontario. Big issue and something uh, the likes of which, Alex, we have never seen in our uh, in our entire history here of using uh, oil and where our oil comes from. Uh, this oil is coming from Alberta, and uh, most of it is destined to our four refineries here in Ontario that produce about 90% of all the fuel that we need. And that's not just, as you rightly pointed out, uh, you know, for home heating and for gasoline and diesel. It's aviation fuel. It's also for the petrochemical sector. Uh, that industry alone is worth tens of billions of dollars to the uh, Ontario and Canadian economy. And so uh, someone turning around saying we're going to shut off a pipeline because we're worried about uh, the possibility of something happening down the road is a little bit like saying, I don't want to go out today because I might slip on a banana peel and uh, break my nose. That, to me, is very irresponsible. What's worse, though, is the indifference, apparently, by our federal government, which has jurisdiction and responsibility and should at least provide a duty of care. Yeah, certainly the Ontario government, uh, uh, Greg Rickford, has um, you know already spoken up about this, and I'm sure that the Ford government will be pushing back on this. But I mean, what people wonder what a Biden government would mean to Canada, and I mean, within days of of I think he him even being kind of uh, announced the winner, um, this kind of stunt is being pulled, and I don't know if it has any bearing on the decision or what prompted this, or how long the the fight has been going on, but there's a lot of politics at play. Play, both not just by the governor, uh, by by the climate change activists. Yeah, there's law, no doubt this is really lawfare. This is them finding excuses to say that even the 1953 agreement that allowed the easement, so we understand that this is a pipeline that goes from Alberta all the way through uh, Wisconsin, then Michigan, and then it crosses over the Straits of Mackinac uh, uh, from uh, Ontario into the United States. And of course, from there, it uh, it makes its way down, dropping off 80% of all the propane needs for Americans, supplies two refineries in Michigan, two refineries in Ohio, and then our four refineries, all four of them here in Ontario, ultimately, that's its destination. If anybody's bet down to Sarnia, they'll know, they'll see the big pipe going under the uh, St. Clair River. That is really what this is about. This is really cutting off a major... Uh, if you call it the, the proverbial cor- you know, uh, carotid artery that you need mm-hmm. to survive as a, as a province. Anybody who thinks that is something that we can walk away from and maybe build a few windmills and uh, you know, have electric cars or scooters or whatever the heck we think we're going to be getting in the next 177 days is really technical. And it demonstrates the extent to which this green agenda, once they're given a bit of power, are prepared to wreak absolute havoc on our way of life. And I unfortunately... My bigger concern isn't that it's going to do damage. It's that so many people here in Ontario, especially here in the GTA, are absolutely uh, oblivious to what's going on, including our media to a large extent. And I thank you for covering this because save and accept the odd commentary from comments of, uh, from colleagues of mine at other places we've worked. Uh, you know, there has been very little in the way of, uh, of focusing on the damages is going to do, not just shortages, but of course, I would anticipate at least a 15 cent a liter increase for gasoline, 20 for diesel, and goodness knows where propane and natural gas prices will go. 
Yeah, we've already seen what can happen. I saw it during the rail strike, which, believe it or not, happened this year. I mean, among everything else, um, of what happens when energy is um, stopped from from moving. We had that rail strike, and of course, uh, Quebec was two, three days away from being out of propane. Um, it, it can wreak real calamity um, on, on the provinces, especially in these cold and very dark days of, of winter that we haven't even started. And so, what is the pushback, and what can Canada do to get this thing reversed, or is it? Is it truly up to, to Justin Trudeau? Because that does not, you know, invoke any confidence from me. Well, no, and it doesn't in me either, uh, nor my anyone else. I think it should not. This is the guy that killed the energy pipeline. Why is that important? Mm-hmm. Because that energy pipeline already exists. It's a natural gas pipeline. It stops in Ontario. Had these guys not done their little woke uh, uh, walk and decided mm-hmm. to destroy this particular uh, pipeline, it's conceivable that within the next year we would have had it running anyways. As it turns out, there is no alternative. The American four refineries that I pointed out, two in Michigan, two in Ohio, will be competing with a much more level playing field than Canadians to acquire additional supply from current pipelines. The Americans have been building pipelines like crazy. They don't have... Sure. Uh, this moronical sort of approach. But look, the federal government had a, a point where it could have made and done the responsible thing and allowed at least part of the energy's pipeline to be built ultimately to New Brunswick, chose not to. And now we've really pinned ourselves into a corner. So for that reason alone, I don't put confidence in them. What I am most disturbed about, though, is we're going to be waiting on a Michigan court to be able to determine the fate of Ontarians. And I've got to tell you, Alex, if this thing gets closed in on May 13th, uh, so a little bit after the winter months and the Americans are able to find their supplies, you know, what are we going to do when 80% of the fuel we need isn't available? And we can't bring it in from Saudi Arabia because we don't have pipelines that carry it that far. So we are in real serious trouble here. And the concern uh, is that it is not seen as a big deal. It's so oh, hum, let's talk about other things. Yes, there are important things out there. But part of our V uh, recovery that we keep thinking we're going to get has now been put in very serious jeopardy in the largest manufacturing province in this country in a jurisdiction which is considered the third largest economic engine uh, or growth area in North America. And it's now all at risk and no one wants to talk about it. Oh, nothing to see here, folks. Let's just move on. I I, I can't believe how flippant some people are. Well, of course, it's not until you run out of fuel or you run out of money that you start saying, well, wait, what, what happened? But of course, as you say, it'll be way too late by then. But, you know, if this is the kind of thing that they're already canceling, I mean, Keystone XL, which Biden actually campaigned on canceling, that to me is just already a dead thing. Yeah, it is. And uh, it won't be the only one. Uh, the folks that have been doing their work in, in Canada, destroying, setting back, stopping pipelines are now, uh, you know, really uh, whetting their appetite over the idea that they may be able to do the same thing in the United States. What's critical, though, for Canadians, I think, to understand uh, in the next couple of months, I mean, we're going to see, you know, more of this kind of shenanigans being performed by governors and others who have been emboldened uh, and given this belief that, hey, we can we can go after this stuff. We can have our uh, Green New Deal uh, but what they don't recognize is that it looks going to hold a whole lot more, more like California than it is uh, in, in the black hats that they saw than the future bright country that we were once uh, just a few years ago, three years ago and two years ago. Uh, two experts at the Department of Emergency Management in the state of Michigan pulled me aside and warned me and said, you've got to tell your governments to get on board on this Line 5 Enbridge issue because you guys are yeah. sleepwalking. It's not good enough to just have write a couple of letters. You have to get loud and you have to get serious in order to push back on this. Otherwise, your province, not our jurisdiction, will be in trouble. 
Well, maybe the Prime Minister can pull himself away from uh, chatting with the United Nations on a daily basis and uh, start, you know, focusing his attention on this. But I will not hold my breath, Mr. Ah, McTagg. No appreciate I. the insight, and I will continue to watch it, so I appreciate it. Thanks so much for doing this, Alex. Cheers. That is Dan McTagg. Consider yourself warned. And again, all these stories that are so, so, so crucial, not just to our country, but to our pocketbooks and to our economic recovery, they're not getting reported because everything's all about COVID. And uh, that tunnel vision is going to cost us dearly. Well, great to have you here on this Monday. We wake up to this great news that a vaccine may eventually free us from this hell known as COVID-19. But of course, until that happens, you know, we've just got to somehow learn to live with this and control it. And um, we finally, you know, we've got the supply of PPE. We've got the hand sanitizer. But could ultraviolet light be a game changer? Because researchers at Ontario's Tech University seem to think so. And we're not just talking about any old ultraviolet light because it can actually be dangerous, but they believes that something called far ultraviolet lighting could be a cheap and safe way to kill off airborne spread when it comes to highly populated areas. It could be a real game changer, let's say, for classrooms or long-term care facilities, hospitals, universities. I mean, the possibilities are endless. So how does it work? Let us ask. Dr. Kirk Atkinson is with the Faculty of Energy Systems and Nuclear Science, which tells me you've got a very, very big brain who can explain all of this. Good to have you. Good to be here. All right. So we've got conventional UVC lighting, which um, is used for micro, I'm not even going to say it, other uses of sterilization, but it is harmful to people. Why? What's the difference between that kind of lighting and what we're talking about? So far UVC uh, is pretty similar to UVC in the way that it kills bugs. Yeah. But because it's more energetic, this kind of is contrary to what people will think. Because it carries more energy, it stops in the outer dead skin layers of your skin and therefore doesn't make it through to your living cells. So it won't cause sunburn, won't cause cancer, won't damage your eyes. So this or makes us it to explode. Different. Yeah, so it makes it very different in terms of how you can use it. You can't use UVC, normal UVC, around people yeah, because of the risks of causing cataracts or causing mm -hmm. cancer uh, and all the other health in impacting issues about it. That's interesting. I never even thought of that. You know, you, you hear the little sizzle when the mosquito or the, the bug or the flame moth hits the, the lighting and you think, OK, great, problem solved. I didn't realize that it could do that much damage to a human being. So how then did you and your research team, you know, find a way um, to get this kind of lighting uh, and how it could be used possibly with and I guess it wouldn't be just COVID-19. It could really be a game changer for, I think, any kind of germ. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so research into far UVC for sterilization in the air uh, has been ongoing for a, a few years now. Uh, there's some groups, probably the biggest group is in, in the U.S. Uh, they were looking at stuff in the lab, uh, taking different kind of uh, bacteria and viruses, things like TB, uh, and they were illuminating them with special kinds of light that they were uh, involved in the development of. Uh, we saw that kind of work, and when COVID hit, we thought, ah, there's a, there's a bit of a gap. You guys mm. haven't really thought about how you're going to put this into practice, how well it can be used, uh, where you could you use it, what do you need to think about. So we started thinking a little bit about that, and uh, working with some collaborators in the UK, we put together a model, a computer model, a computer simulation of how this could be used. And we, we simulated 
a kind of room that you might have in a long-term care facility or a hospital. Uh, and what we found was, although you can have ventilation, even cycling your air out once every, say, seven or eight minutes in, out of the room, uh, this still wasn't as good uh, as using the lamps. Uh, we found that using uh, far UVC lamps, we could uh, get 50 to 85% better killing, better uh, reduction in the concentration of virus in the air uh, than you could through ventilation alone. So this has, wow. has a really big impact. I mean, when we think about 85% plus, we're talking about approaching what an N95 mask can do. Yeah. Right, right. And I, and I have heard of others talking about, you know, UVC lighting um, as a possible kind of treatment for it. But is this particular um, project that you're working on, is it a first of its kind? And if it is, I mean, does it need Health Canada approval? I mean, how close would it be to getting to market? Yeah. So in terms of the technology, the technology is there. Yeah, the technology has been there for a few years now. Uh, there was... Prior to COVID, there wasn't so many vendors that made these kind of lamps. Uh, but now there are obviously quite a lot more, as you might mm -hmm. imagine. Uh, what we've done that's really novel is being able to take that lamp and to figure out how you can use it, where you would place them in the room, uh, how much illumination that you need, what kind of airflows are going to have an impact. Uh, so we're, we're, we're taking it from the lab into the sort of proper practical understanding for the first time. Uh, other people are looking at where you can apply far UVC, and there are some places in Canada that have looked at this a little bit, uh, but in a limited way. Uh, so what we're doing is, is making it much more amenable and much more understandable uh, in terms of how it could be used. Uh, right. And, and, and then so how, how long would it take to get this to market? I mean, is this the kind of thing Health Canada would have to approve? And if, if not, I mean, well, we, realistically, we could you buy it? Now. Okay, so could. Now. Okay. And, and so what? It's about you can, placement? You can go on Google. Google yeah. now. You'll see the price. You'll see the price is what, about a thousand bucks per lamp. If you want to look at it that way. Maybe okay. US. So if you look at that and say, okay, that's expensive. Yeah. So part of that is because the vendors of these lamps, there's only a limited number. So if we could have scale up of manufacture, the kind of support that's been going into the vaccine community, going into uh, businesses here in, in Canada uh, and elsewhere, we could make more of these more quickly. The technology is already there. We can do it. We can buy right. one tomorrow. If we think about my colleagues, I said, in, 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 the, in the U.S., uh, they have a couple of coffee shops in New York City where they're actually using these, and we're going to be working with them uh, on this kind of work. Uh, so we can do it now. Uh, one of the barriers is obviously the availability of these lamps. You know, when you look at the cost, you say, oh, it's quite a lot of money. But when you think about how much devastation COVID is causing to, uh, to our economy, uh, when you think about that you can't have the restaurants opening, uh, you can't have the theatres opening, uh, people don't tra travel on transit as much, uh, let alone air travel. Uh, you know, you start thinking about the context of that cost versus the cost even now, and it's not so bad. 
Uh, right. Even if even let me step in there because I'm, I'm going to run out of time. But I mean, even if um, just as a secondary or a third kind of measure to kind of, you know, yeah. kill everything off, it, it still has a lot of benefit. I think my question and a lot of others would say is, why isn't this being looked at then uh, by governments and by, you know, school boards or hospitals if in fact it offers, um, you know, that extra barrier of safety? Well, I asked the same question. Uh, we we have tried to get some funding to look at this, and we were unsuccessful. Uh, but we've we've done it off our own backs at Ontario Tech and elsewhere, same as the groups in the in the U.S. But now they're using it in practice. And we've got to think about this moving forward as well. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, these vaccines are going to really work for us, and we're going to be back to sort of normal uh, in uh, in a year's time. But what about the next virus? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ten years ago, we had H1N1. 15, 17 years ago, we had SARS. These things are coming every five or 10 years. And this technology will work on all of them. TB, measles, COVID. Yeah. We can knock them all out in the air. Yeah, before they're not, to, not, not to mention the, the basic flu season, if it can reduce uh, yeah. and, and ease uh, the pressure in places like long-term cares or uh, daycares or, or, you know, the, the germ vectors of our society. Well, I mean, look, it, I think it sounds fascinating. Um, curious to see where, if anywhere, it goes. But, of course, it comes down to getting the ear of the right people. So we'll uh, stay in touch, doctor, and um, see if it catches on with anybody. Brilliant. Appreciate your time on this. Thank you very much. No problem. Anytime. That's Dr. Kirk Atkinson with uh, Energy Systems and Nuclear Science over at Ontario's Tech University. So we've got technology available. I don't know if it's being looked at, but we have heard of this before. And certainly if it's there, I think it would be uh, worth looking into. Certainly if you can reduce any kind of germs that keeps people out of hospitals, keeps the spread uh, of anything anywhere. But uh, I guess we'll see if someone listens to the information. You, of course, can join our show Monday through Friday, 6.30 to 10 each night. I'm Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio.